You've read her journals, her erotica, and you love to quote her. But do you know the truth about Anais Need's erotic life? On this episode of Sex, Love, Joy, Paul Heron explains that and much more. You're listening to Sex, Love, Joy, an interview series in which special guests reveal intimate details about how they connect the dots between sex, love, joy. I am your host, Anain Bjorkwest. On today's show, I have with me Paul Heron of Sky Brew Press. He is the foremost authority on Anais Neen. He is also the one person working very hard to continue her legacy by bringing us the last volumes of her unexpurgated diaries. Currently, he's working on Trapeze that is chock full of the juiciest years of Anais's life. This episode is a little longer than usual, so we're going to just get right into it. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Paul. Thank you for being on Sex of Joy. Glad to be here. Would you tell the listeners what is one of the things that you are an expert on? I'm an expert on two things. I'm an expert on myself and Anna Eastney. Can you tell us what made her who she was? I could sum it up in, in one sentence. When her father left the family, that made her who she was. Anais was 10 years old when her father, who was a composer and pianist, abandoned the family for a young piano student who was a teenager, ran off with her. Anais called her La Jolie, the pretty girl. So her father ran off with the pretty girl. And Anais had been abused by her father verbally, calling her ugly. uh, And that stuck in her craw because she felt that she was being rejected by her father for this young, pretty girl who was only a few years older than her, by the way. Um, So she, first of all, lost her father. She lost her, eventually lost her country, lost her culture. And when the family moved to New York, she was in a, she was lost in that world. She, uh, had no coping skills for that world, and she suffered for many years. And the other thing that uh, made her who she is or was is the fact that uh, she began a diary on the ship from Europe over to New York, which was intended to be a letter to entice her father to come back to the family in New York. Well, her mother never let her mail the letter, but This became a document that just kept going and going until only a few days before her death. So I would say, to sum it up, I would say that uh, because the father left, Anais was now trying to be the woman that would entice her father back. She tried it as a little girl with her letters to her father, uh, and eventually she tried to be La Jolie. And it failed for her as a young woman. She married She married the wrong guy, let's put it that way. She married somebody who was totally incompatible with her, sexually incompatible. They didn't consummate their marriage for 
the better part of a year. And to make matters worse, uh, he was physically too big for her. And so it was a painful experience whenever they had sex. And so she associated sex with her husband as passionless, empty, and painful. Um, the next thing she did was she, her, as her sexuality started to open up as a young woman, she uh, tried to seduce one of her husband's old college professors, who was also a, a semi-famous author. And she was devastated when he couldn't consummate this. I think he was probably overwhelmed with the fact that, that uh, he had this beautiful young woman in, in this hotel room with him, but she was the wife of his former student and friend. And I think all of that added up to, I ain't going to get this done today. <laughs> 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 and uh, Annie East was uh, really devastated by this because she wanted to be La Jolie and, and she, she didn't feel she was yet. Um, it wasn't until a few years later that when she met Henry Miller, that her sexuality was finally, uh, I guess you could say, utilized in the right way. Uh, Henry basically taught Annie East how to have sex. She didn't know how to have sex. She had never really had good, normal sex. And so when Henry came along, he opened up one, he opened up many worlds for her, but the one that uh, probably changed her the most as a as a woman was he taught her how to make love, and it took her a while, but she began to respond to him. Um, I, I I I really question how many orgasms she had with her husband. It is very possible that she never had one, and she may have never had an orgasm until with Henry Miller. So. Then, while this affair was going on, it was about a year into it, the father comes back into the picture. What happens is that he showed up at the Louvciennes house where she lived outside of Paris, the famous laboratory of the soul, as Miller called it. And when he met his daughter for the first time in many years, he was absolutely smitten by her, absolutely smitten. And he said to her, you are the synthesis of all the women I've ever been with. And then he unleashed a torrent of passionate letters, seducing her, no question about it. Uh, most people don't know about these letters because they, they were tucked away in Adi East's studio for many years, and nobody knew of their existence. Not even uh, Neen's biographers knew about these letters, and they all assumed that she had destroyed them. But no, she didn't destroy them. She carefully kept them in this little folder, little manila folder. And I found this folder when I was cleaning up in, in Adi East's studio. And when I discovered this folder and pulled it out, and it said on the cover, father letters. I almost, I almost dropped. I, I was just uh, shocked that these existed and that I had found them. 
And so I set about translating them and so on. And when I did, I discovered if there's any question about who seduced whom, uh, they are answered by these letters. I, I published a few of them in a cafe in space uh, a, a few years back. So anyway, they did meet in the south of France. And he had predicted in one of his letters, he brazenly said, there will be fire within the four walls of my hotel room when you come here. And it, basically that, that, that came to pass. Uh, they, they, they did have sex. And you know, there's another little aside here. There are, there are a lot of doubters. There at least were a lot of doubters, and probably still are, that, that she actually had sex with her father. And, and the doubters are usually people who knew her. <clears throat> and uh, But I have the handwritten diaries here that uh, Rupert Xerox, and what's in the book Incest, where she describes this event, is verbatim from the handwritten diary. So there there is no doubt that, yes, uh, they did have sex. And they had sex quite a few times um, over a period of several months. Eventually, Anise grew tired of him because he was emotionally unavailable. unavailable. He, he was uh, very cold, uh, very vain, uh, and very shallow. His, his grandioseness was fakery, and she saw through it. So eventually she decided... I do not want to be with him any longer and cut him out of her life. He ended up going to Cuba when World War II began, and she never saw him again. So after she had that seduction with him and she realized that he wasn't who she had made him out to be in her head and who he had always made himself out to be to others, how did that change the course of her life? Because you say that that moment with, with her father leaving them was so essential. How did she continue on after with the rest of her life, with her sexuality, with the seduction of other men that were coming into her life? Well, after, after this event, she was pretty uh, faithful in the sense that the only two men in her life were her husband and Henry. But later on in the 30s, she met a Peruvian communist named Gonzalo Morey. And this man was raw, was savage, was a kind of guy that she wrote a book about it called Fire. And that was their relationship. It was a relationship of fire, fuego. And so... Um, this affair began with an explosion. But as she got to know Gonzalo and realized that he was basically dysfunctional, he was a, he was a drug user, uh, a, he was a drinker, he had a wife that was sucking him dry, and he let her do it. And he couldn't, he couldn't hold down a job. And he basically very willingly accepted Anais' money, to support him and his wife. So yeah, that relationship, while it started out strong and the sex was great, um, it began to wither. And by the time they all ended up in New York at the onset of the war, that, that relationship was already in pretty big trouble. 
and so was the one with Miller. Um, she felt abandoned by Miller because when the war was about to start, instead of uh, staying in France or going to New York, he went to Greece to be with Lawrence Durrell and left Anais behind. And she regarded this as a, an abandonment. And of course, she had abandonment issues because of her father. Um, so when Henry left for Greece, that really was the beginning of the end of that relationship. They carried it on a couple of years in New York, but uh, with a very explosive exchange of letters that are presented in the uh, unexpurgated diary, Mirages, they broke up. Um, it was a very explosive and bitter breakup. The, the relationship with Gonzalo was dying. Ani East had her husband, but she had no relationship with him. She was hungry, very hungry. So she sought out others. And the period after the Miller breakup, up until the time she met her future second husband, simultaneously, that is, Rupert Paul, <laughs> in 1947, there, there was a period of about five years of erotic madness, we'll call it. Where, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Annie East found herself with just about any kind of man you can imagine. Um, Haitian men, um, homosexuals, teenagers, old men, you name it. If she, if she woke up one, one morning with a stranger in her bed and... It, 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 it made her realize that she was on a runaway train and it was going nowhere except for downhill. That was kind of uh, rectified when she met Rupert Pohl. When she met Rupert Pohl at a party, she was amazed at his beauty, but afraid that he would be just another one of these homosexuals like Gore Vidal or somebody like that. So she was very hesitant around him at first, but it didn't take long for them to have a conversation or two. And eventually he came over for dinner one night at the apartment while Hugo was away. And they were about to make dinner when Rupert impulsively picked Anise up and carried her over to the couch and made love to her madly. And now here's another thing about East that most people don't know. I should, I got to interject this right here. Most people don't understand that while she is uh, viewed as sort of a sexual pioneer and probably the, one of the most voracious literary figures of our, of our, uh, of our knowledge, she had an awful time having orgasms, especially when she had just met someone. It took her well, you know, for example, she met a guy, uh, a, a Viennese opera singer in Provincetown, where they had sex on the beach uh, in the sand dunes, and she wrote about it in Erotica, the the dunes. Anyway, she couldn't. She it took her more than a year to have an orgasm with this man. You know, she said everything but the ultimate, everything but the final spasm, everything but the climax, everything but. When she had sex with Rupert Powell that first time, she had the most electrifying and deep orgasm. 
And she was simply amazed that he was capable of bringing that out of her. And it just never ceased. <laughs> it, it never ceased. Uh, I, I found a diary of hers written in 1973, which in which she describes this wonderful night of lovemaking with Rupert and how electrifying and lightning stabs and on and on. And then you stop and think about, okay, 1973. Well, she was 70 at that time. <laughs> you know, and she, she was still having that kind of reaction with him. She, she describes in her final diary the book of pain and the book of music of Rupert taking her to the swimming pool. This is when she is very, very ill with cancers, had an operation which has left her, as she put it, mutilated, but took her into the swimming pool and made love to her there because it was, it was uh, less painful that way. But she just loved that about him. And as she said in the new diary that's coming out, Trapeze, one of, the, one of the titles of the chapters is Desire Will Buy Another Airline Ticket. Because when she was swinging before, back and forth between the, the coasts, uh, between husbands, you know, it was the desire for Rupert that kept bringing her back. And she was in her 40s when she met him, if I remember correctly. She was probably early 40s. She was uh, 44. Yeah. That's a long time to live to not find that person who you have those electrifying orgasms with and have that connection. Especially when you've had so many specimens in your life. <laughs> I love that you called them specimens. Well, some <laughs> no, that's of them true. It's just, but that to me, you know, tells women that you can't give up. There's a lot of women who come into their sexuality in their 40s and, and 50s. And I love that you're telling everyone, you know, she was in her 70s and she's still having sex. That it makes me adore her more. <laughs> yeah, not just sex. It was just awesome sex. <laughs> so and that, that was the, the question. Was her sex life that good? And what are the misconceptions about her sex life? I think the biggest misconception is is that she was sex, sexually fulfilled with all these various men. And the truth of the matter is that she was very rarely fulfilled by any of these men. There were a very few. Uh, one of the ones that um, she felt sexually satisfied by was a Haitian man named Albert Mangonis, who she had to work hard to seduce him. He was a beautiful guy. He was an architect. He was in the States uh, briefly. He had a fiance. He also had a girlfriend. And Ani East is working real hard to seduce this man. And finally he caved in. And when he did, they had they had really good sex. And then I think the next one would be the, the teenager, Bill Pinkard, she met him when he was 17 years old. Basically, he was a fan of her writing. Um, he was he came from a wealthy family who tightly controlled him, and he was rebelling against them. And Ana East basically pretty much took him in uh, when he left when he left college and he left his parents. Ana East arranged to have a place for him to stay. 
And of course, he was a beautiful young man. Ani East fell for him and seduced him and taught him what Henry taught her, how to have sex, how to, how to make love. And her instructions to him are well written out in mirages, and I, I think that might make a guidebook for anybody that's interested <laughs> in, in unusual ways to, to make love. But the, the, the sexual relationship she had with young Bill was a very, very good one, very intense and very satisfying to her. And she felt that she was giving birth to Bill this way, giving birth to Bill the man. She felt she was living with the future Bill. And this made her feel like a mother, but a sensual mother. So it was an interesting relationship. Bill basically outgrew this eventually. And he uh, ended up going into the Navy and ended up in Japan. So that relationship failed. And it hurt her. She 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 was on the rebound. That's when she met Gore Vidal, with whom she could not have a sexual relationship because he was homosexual. And then after all this frustration, she was going from one stranger to the next to the next to the next, and and none of them, none of them should have been in her bed really. When you stop and think about it, because these were not worthy people. Some of them. Um, Eventually, when she met Rupert Paul, that's when her sex life actually got good. So all that time between uh, when she left Miller until she met Rupert Paul, that was a, as many men as she had. It was still a very unsatisfying period for her. That's, I think, a misconception. The other thing that I wanted to um, ask you was about her jealousy. And how in some of the diaries, um, she comes off as jealous. Even one of the podcasts that, that you did, you talked about how she was at a party and she became jealous. Mm. But she um, she was a person that was known to have her secrets and to have intricate deceptions. So where do you think that jealousy came from? Oh, I think it goes back to La Jolie. Because she even referenced that when in Trapeze, as you will see. Uh, she references her father's... Uh, affection for young pretty girls she said because of la jolie i lost everything i had i lost my life i lost my world i lost my country and on and on and so when rupert especially because he was a big flirt he couldn't help himself uh <laughs> he just couldn't and he was he was always that way when he would openly flirt with young pretty girls at the parties or events or wherever they were on their vacations, Anais just became incredibly neurotically jealous. But I think it was because, and she even articulated herself, that it goes right back to her father, that she did not want to lose Rupert to one of these young, pretty girls. And so I think the jealousy is rooted in her uh, traumatic experience that she had in losing her father. I think that's where it comes from. What have you learned as a man and a lover or how has reading her writing and having such an intimate look at her sexuality and sensuality how have you changed from being so close to her work <laughs> <laughs> well uh i guess it's there's nothing that she says specifically that would say uh that changed me as a man or changed me as a lover 
but I, I will say this, that when reading her work for the first time, um, this is now almost 25 years ago, reading her work for the first time made me aware of myself because there are so many parallels in my life and her life that I didn't understand where I was coming from. I didn't understand myself. Uh, my interior was totally, un totally unknown to me. I, I didn't understand myself. So I didn't understand why is it I don't fit in with people? Why is it that I feel like the odd man out all the time? Why is it I can't relate? What is it about me? What is this going on? And I began to get hard on myself, blame myself for it. When I started to read her work, I realized here's somebody who's gone through exactly the same things that I have. She's gone through the, this whole thing where she can't relate to people. Uh, she can't relate to bourgeois life. She, <laughs> she, can't, she can't relate to um, the, the way things are. And so she was struggling to create her own life. And when I read these words, all of a sudden I began to understand, hey, guess what? There's nothing wrong with me. There's yeah. nothing wrong with me. It's everybody else that's messed up, not me. <laughs> the problem is they can't relate to me. It's not the other way around. And so suddenly the blame, the blame that I had and uh, the self-criticism I had was relieved. This opened a lot of doors for me because I began to feel more alive. And so I started to reach out to other people who were into Adi's and discovered, guess what? I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one that feels this way. There are plenty of us, and, and we all kind of gravitate to Ani East. That, that's why my motto is strangers who have Ani East need in common aren't really strangers. And it's, it's really true. Well, you and I, you and I know that. Yeah. And so um, as I began to become more and more stimulated by people, and many of them were women, by the way, as I became more stimulated by them, my life began, began to explode and I began to feel creative and I began to feel good about myself and I began to feel like I'm part of something. Well, that carries over into your other parts of your life. And sexuality is one of them. You know, I, I had a belief system and I felt, uh, I, I felt dictated by other people's rules. Yeah. Once, once I discovered on the East, I realized, no, I got to make my own rules. And... So I, and it caused problems. It caused problems, you know, it causes problems when suddenly you start breaking the rules yeah. and rewriting the rules and making up your own and living by them. Then you create problems with all the people you've ever known in your life, with your relationships, mm -hmm. uh, with your family and with your coworkers and whoever else happens to be around you. You know, I had one guy I worked with for maybe 25 years, and he said to me, you know, Paul, the longer I know you, the less I know you. Wow. And you know, this was during the time when I was changing, and nobody could figure me out. But then again, you know, I don't think they could have figured me out one way or the other, but they were really baffled at this point. In your podcast, you have a lovely podcast where you, you reveal – usually in 15 minutes or less, all these tidbits that even someone like me who's read a lot of her work didn't know. And I learned something new from each podcast. 
But in that podcast, and I think it was the third one, you talked about how it was the rating on the movie that got you in the door. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to know. <laughs> I wanted to see it. There was no hold me back. I didn't care what the movie was about. I just wanted to see this NC-17 thing. And so when I got in there, I had no idea what I was in for. And <laughs> when the movie started rolling, uh, I was sucked into the world that these mm -hmm. people were involved in, Henry Miller and June Miller and Ani East. And um, I went there for one reason, but I came out transformed. Once I, I realized these people were real, because I had never heard of them before. <laughs> and I hadn't read a book, seriously, in, in probably a literary book. I hadn't read a literary book, hadn't read a literary book in 20, 20 years. You know, I was what they call illiterate. I could read. I just chose not to. I always thought that reading was for people with nothing else to do. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that movie, that movie inspired me to buy her work and by Miller's work. And um, I like to say that it was Diary One and Tropic of Cancer that intermingled and produced me, the literary me, you know, the one that, that you're talking to today. Thank God for the movie, Henry and June, you know, thank God for NC-17. With her telling people, um, one of my favorite quotes is, um, you have the right to experiment with your life. You will make mistakes and they are right too. How much of this statement do you believe and have applied to your own life? Well, I've, I got that mistake stuff down pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> I've made plenty of them. But my motto is, if you're going to fall, fall forward. Try to fall forward. Because when you get up, you're a couple inches further down the road. Uh, if you fall backwards, of course, then you, you've, you've failed. That's a failure to me. So if you're going to fall, fall forward. And I think that when Ani says make mistakes, well, I think she's got a good point that if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying. You're not trying to do anything. You're not living, really. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I was very good at avoiding mistakes. I was afraid to make mistakes. And the fear of making mistakes and the fear of failure, especially, held me back uh, when, for example, as I mentioned earlier that I was a musician and I was a songwriter and you know I wasn't half bad but I was so scared of failure that I never tested the waters I never had the courage to bring that work out into the world and see what happens with Ani East on my side so to speak I'm not afraid anymore to make mistakes and I'm not afraid to fail because I fail all the time I, I fail every day at something um, we all do. <laughs> yeah, we all do. Uh, you know, when I look at all all the books I've published, you know, you could say, well, this is a failure. This is a failure. And maybe, you know, in a certain way, it is a failure, but it's out there. And to me, it may be a failure today, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, somebody's going to discover that or it's going to be there for those select few people that want it. And so it may be a commercial failure, but. Um, it's okay. It's okay to fail. It's okay to fuck up. And that's the thing about her. She was a failure for most of her life, oh, according God. to to commercial standards. And that tore her up for for many years that she didn't have that commercial success. Right. When she was in Paris, she was just starting to come into her own as an author, as a published author. She had three books published while she was in Paris. Uh, the last of which, the winner of Artifice. 
unfortunately, the war killed any chance for that book to become popular. And so when she came to the States, she was suddenly faced with a very hostile literary world. And no one would publish her work. No one. Everyone refused her. So she decided, okay, fuck it. I'm going to do it myself. And she bought an old-fashioned hand-operated printing press, which she and her lover Gonzalo uh, used to crank out her books. And they were beautiful books, by the way. But none of them were successful in terms of uh, commercial uh, uh, viability. And when she finally did, because of Gore Vidal, who worked at Dutton, Gore Vidal got her in the door there, and they published some of her books. But they rejected her after the sales fell. And then she bounced from publisher to publisher to publisher, all of whom rejected her after the first book or two uh, because they just couldn't sell them. Um, the only commercial success she had in terms of numbers during this period was when she had uh, a spy in the House of Love printed by Avon Pocket Books who printed it at 25 cents a copy. And they sold 101,000 copies of this book, which sounds great, right? But the problem is that she was paid a royalty of exactly one penny for each book. So if you do the math, <laughs> <laughs> wow. if you do the math, she was not making much money. Not at all. And then her final book that she published before she finally signed on with Swallow, which was a big breakthrough for her, uh, was uh, self-published. It was what is uh, now known as uh, Seduction of the Minotaur, but back then it was called Solar Bark, which is basically the first part of Seduction. And she printed that herself, and Hugo paid for it. So it, it was a humiliating thing for her to have to, at this stage of her career, she's now in her mid-50s, and she can't get a book published unless her husband pays for it. That's humiliating. It is, but she kept putting herself out there. She did. What made her eventually release the diaries? Well, she had always toyed with the idea, and she had always uh, passed certain versions, uh, very expurgated versions of the diary around to publishers. Uh, even, even in uh, Paris, she was talking about it. Henry Miller encouraged her to do it. Um, when she... In the 1950s, she gave her her diaries to two people, two friends of hers. One was Maxwell Geismar, who was a critic. The other was James Leo Herlihy, who was most famous for Midnight Cowboy. And these, these were good friends of hers, and she trusted them. When these two began to read these diaries, they encouraged her to the point where she realized that this was her life's work. She knew it in the 50s. The problem was she didn't have a way to publish it. She just didn't know how to go about it. When she met Gunther Stuhlman, who, was, who became her literary agent and later her editor, they began to concoct a plan to make the diary readable and yet not hurt anybody. One of the first things they did was Hugo, the husband, was removed from the diary. And it, it is said that it was his request. He didn't want to be in the diary. But I have a feeling that, you know, 
it, it would have been complicated all the way around, so I'm sure everybody was happy with that decision. Although Gunther does mention it in the introduction that she did have a husband who chose to be out of the diary. Most people don't read introductions. So when, <laughs> <laughs> when people were were felt betrayed by Ani East, when they found out that she had a husband, it's like, hey, just read the introduction. He's there, you know. They just couldn't mention it in the book. So, uh, and of course, removing all of the amorous events of Ani East's life and keeping the, the sensual quality without the explicit uh, descriptions. It was, you know, it was a trick. It was a tricky thing to do. And between Ani East and Gunther, you know, that first diary, when it was released, came off very well. It, it was a, a bombshell for the world. It, it's, it catapulted Ani East into fame. And it gave her the impetus and the publishers, especially the impetus to go on and keep producing these diaries as long as they could get away with it because they were selling very well. And so, you know, that that's how that all began. But it was a very a difficult task to remove all of these events and remove all these people and still produce a very readable book. And there's misconceptions around Rupert's role in releasing the unexpurgated diaries. Can you clear up some of that stuff? Yeah, you know, when um, when incest came out in particular, uh, Henry June came out, yeah, there was there was an uproar among people who knew Ana East. But when incest came out, well, the title says it all. Yeah. Um, the title says it all. And so when Ana East's friends and fans and others uh, began to read this book, they were absolutely shocked, absolutely shocked by the incest passage where Anise describes in very, very graphic detail her uh, first encounter with her father. These people were so shocked. I, I was actually sitting in a garden party once with, with some women that knew Anise, uh, peripherally, but they knew her. And they were talking about incest. And they said, one of them said very specifically, I know that she didn't write this. There's no way she would have written this. I think that, that Rupert Paul and Gunther Stuhlman made this up. They wrote it. And uh, others said, well, maybe she wrote it, but she never would have wanted this out in the world. She never would have wanted people to read this. And so Rupert Paul's just in it for the money. So either way, Rupert Paul's in it for the money. And they're exploiting her for it. But So that, that goes back to a very basic question. Did Anais want her unexpurgated diaries published. The answer comes from Ana East herself, because if you read the postscript to the introduction to Delta of Venus, she very clearly suggests, she says, if the unexpurgated diaries ever come out, you will find out more about me as a sensual being. Boom, right there. Okay, so once again, read the introductions, people. <laughs> you actually get the truth there. So. She did want the diaries out there. Uh, Rupert did everything he could to get them out there. Do you have a favorite story or book of hers that's fiction? Yeah, yes. It, uh, it's it's one of the first books I read by her. It's House of Incest. Um, House of Incest to me isn't a book. It, it it it's it's an experience. It's you're not reading it. You're you're doing it. You're, you're, you're in it. You are it. That's how I feel whenever I read this book. It's like going on a, an acid trip almost, only with 
better side effects. Uh, <laughs> but this book to me, no matter how many times I read it, I get something different out of it every time. It's not the kind of book that can be explained. Mm -hmm. It's not the kind of book that uh, people, uh, critics are going to write about and say, this is the meaning of the book, and this person is this person, and this character is that person. I actually met somebody who wrote an index, or or, yeah, an index for House of Incest. It was like uh, a glossary of terms. What does this term mean? And he would explain it. I wanted to find that guy and punch him. I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> you're missing the point. That you're, this, is not the, the, you, this is not a book that you try to understand. This is a book you experience. And it takes me there every time I read it. Um, so if I'm feeling that my feet are grounded in clay and I, I can't seem to move, and I, can't, I can't get any altitude, I'll get that book out. And I, I, I will be released after reading it. So, yeah, it's a very, therape- a very therapeutic book for me. Um, and I do rely on it like I rely on certain medicines, you know, to, to keep me healthy and well. <laughs> That's funny. We all have a book like that. Tease us about trapeze. Well, most Dean readers know uh, that Ani East had a bigamous uh, relationship with uh, Rupert and with Hugo. Most people know that they, she flew back and forth across the country, thus the name trapeze, swinging back and forth across the country. But most people have no idea what kind of shenanigans that she had to pull in order to maintain this insane lifestyle. Um, and you have to realize this is, this is, you know, 60 years ago now, you know, that this all began. And, um, most people also don't understand the psychological and physical toll it took on her. Most people don't understand why did she stay married to Hugo during all this time? Why didn't, why didn't she just divorce Hugo? And was it just because of the money? Uh, was it because that she actually did love him and wanted did, couldn't give him up. Uh, why is this? Well, she explains it all. You know, she she explains it all in her 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 own words. And there's nobody better to tell that story than she. Um, so you will find out why she never left Hugo. You'll find out why she never left Rupert. And you'll find out that she actually was contemplating leaving both of them. Some maybe one at a time, or maybe both of them, just <laughs> jettison both of them and just you know make her own life. Uh, you'll understand how much pain she was in during this period of time, especially because of the uh, the backstory, which is the, her inability to get published. Yeah. Uh, it was killing her, absolutely killing her. And you'll find out, you know, how she coped with that, because that the 1950s was a very arid period for her. Uh, speaking of literature and publishing, you'll find out a lot of the uh, secrets that that she had to uh, keep and how she did it and how she had so many people working for her, so to speak. Uh, (laughs) She had she had a whole crew of people working for her uh, that uh, included some many, many famous people, actually, that helped her lead her double life by intercepting phone calls and making sure letters got delivered and and uh, keeping one man from the other. You'll also find out that there was a time when it came, it was very close, 
very close that the two men discovered each other when Rupert impulsively showed up in New York and Anais had a husband at home who happened to be in back traction and Rupert just suddenly appeared, didn't give her any warning, just showed up. There, there he is, and he's in a hotel a few doors down from where Anis lives. And so somehow she had to handle that situation, and she did it beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a miracle. She was a miracle worker, but she had help. She had help, the maid included. <laughs> this is the mystery that will be solved for me finally. <laughs> yeah. I cannot wait to read it. Is there anything else that you want listeners to know about Anais? I just think that if you feel that you'd like to get to know yourself better, and Anais said that she wrote to the potential you, that she wasn't writing to you, she was writing to the potential you. If you want to know who that potential you is, read her work. You may find out. I love that. That's so juicy. That's so her. Sex is... Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Love is... Essential. Joy is. Indispensable. And I'm filled with it right now. Thank you so much for being on Sex Love Joy. Oh, it's been a pleasure.